wasn't a very well-behaved little stinker, is she? Quiet, please. I can't concentrate here. Ella Frel, I give you the gift of obedience. Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah, and today we're talking about Ella Enchanted. Yet another Cinderella adaptation with a twist. <laughs> Burdened with the gift of obedience, Ella Afrel goes in search of the fairy who can free her of this curse and finds herself ensnared in a more sinister plot than she expects. This movie was released in 2004, directed by Tommy O'Haver, who also did the 2001 Kirsten Dunst movie Get Over It and was based on the novel by Gail Carson Levine. It's pretty well known that the movie is pretty different from the book. Oh. So I, I watched this movie over and over and over and over again <laughs> when I was younger, and years later found out that it was based on the book, and then I read the book. So I don't remember it all that well. Like I feel like even as I was reading the book, it was already being like erased by the movie because of how much I love the movie. <laughs> so we've looked at Cinderella adaptations in our past two episodes and Ella Enchanted with its 51% rating on Rotten Tomatoes seemed like the perfect option to round out our Cinderella special as the most, shall we say, out there take on the classic fairy tale. <laughs> While the audience response has been mixed, this movie, as Sarah said, was a go-to rewatch for her. While I've only seen it once and had forgotten all about it, so today we want to revisit it and see if it's more fun or farcical because critics for sure can't seem to decide. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's always valid to lob any criticism over any like piece of work but i feel like the criticisms for this movie tend to be things that it's kind of the point of the movie mm. like it's too of its time and it's like it's supposed to be that way that's kind of the point yeah i think the review i wanted to talk about kind of embodies that this is from boston globe and it says that the movie is an overcalculated fusion of shrek and the princess bride with all the smarts replaced by smartass and when I read this, I thought, that's the point, right? Shrek is also smartass, and that's the point. That's the intentional tone yeah. that the movie is taking. I don't think it's an accident. And that's kind of also what I appreciated about the movie. It's that it takes such a smartass and witty and kind of sardonic tone towards its source material. And that's the movie being creative and doing something different instead of just relying on the legacy of the source material and expecting nostalgia to carry its success, you know? It's the movie actually doing something. <laughs> Cuff, Central 2015, Cuff. <laughs> immediately bashing it. <laughs> yeah, it's also like, okay, then what makes this quote-unquote overcalculated and Shrek and the Princess Bride not? I think there's some maybe double standard here. Potentially. But to your point, these same traits are also what makes the movie, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> or rather, one critic's trash is a teenage girl's treasure. <laughs> Wow, this is actually so fitting because the review is from Entertainment Weekly, <laughs> Every Girl's Dream magazine. It reads, The hoot and giggle of a girl power fairy tale blended from potions of Monty Python, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and Shrek. And again, I think they're 
both the movie I found and the one you found touch on these pop culture touchstones that the movie definitely draws on and you could say that it's a matter of opinion whether or not that's a pro or a con. I think it's objectively a pro in the sense that the movie intended to do that and they succeeded. But another review that says this more explicitly that I really liked was from Chicago Tribune, and it reads, The movie's computer-generated castles, magic visuals, and sloppy effects echo a low-budget fancy movie on cable. And that's kind of the tone they're going for. It's supposed to feel low-budget, charming kind of thing. I was trying to find the exact thing that kind of threads all of these pop culture touchstones together, and it's that texture, it's that feature. Yeah. So... I think it's clear we both enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, more or less. But let's actually talk about the movie. And we will be discussing this movie in chronological order, as always. And it starts with Frel, this fantasy land filled with fantasy creatures, like giants and fairies. And it starts with this kooky narrator who talks about the perils of choices we face in our youth. If we're comparing this with something like, I don't know, Cinderella 2015 off the top of my head. <laughs> I think this narrator really does a great job of setting the tone mm -hmm. because it's supposed to be fantastical, but also very playful. And it also does a much better job of just being a framing device. It doesn't butt in when it's not needed. <laughs> the only times the narrator shows up is the very beginning and the very end, and a couple crucial moments at the low points of the movie around the climax. Yeah, you could really tell that the narrator serves a purpose, whereas with Cinderella 2015, it felt like the narration was overcompensating for something and continuously trying to fill in these gaps, even when there were no gaps. I think there's also something to the fact that this movie has a lot of other elements that support the tone and atmosphere and the fact that it's supposed to be like a fantasy land and a fairy tale. Like obviously the story itself and the setting and the set design and everything. And so the narrator doesn't need to do any heavy lifting. Mm. Whereas in Cinderella, like you said, it is overcompensating because all of the other elements weren't as strong. Like they needed this narrator lady to really beat you over the head with the fact that it's supposed to feel like a fairy tale instead of kind of showing you, you know, like making it feel like a fairy tale. Yeah, you're right. I think you can especially see this difference in the settings of both movies because already in the introduction, it feels like such a real place as we're zooming over the different parts of the kingdom. Whereas in Cinderella 2015, it felt like such a generic, random place and it didn't feel like there was any intention behind why they decided to set the story where they did, apart from the fact that it just looks pretty. Yeah, yet another reason why it was so weird that they changed it to Brynn <laughs> instead of letting it be in France. Oh, one more thing about the narration. One line that the narrator said really stood out to me and it was our hero had no choice or so it would seem and i think it's such an interesting take on cinderella's kindness yeah. because it takes it to the extreme and turns it on its head i think we mentioned this in the cinderella comparison episode that cinderella's inherent trait 
is her kindness towards people. Whereas here, it's out of her hands completely. I think that's already such a more creative take on the traditional story than Cinderella 2015. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And you know, that's such a great point. Because when you said that line, what I thought was that the 2015 Cinderella, we talked about how they missed the point about how Cinderella is kind of trapped there. It's not like she's choosing to be in her position. And, you know, the story of Cinderella is inherently about her being trapped in this predicament. And that line about not having a choice or so it would seem is so great because it touches on that theme. It's such a universal human experience mm -hmm. that is so core to the story of Cinderella and the fact that they could pick that out and highlight it in this movie and depict it in this way is so creative and smart and I just love it. <laughs> exactly that's a great way to put it. It also gives the magic in this world a purpose because that's the vehicle driving the symbolism or this whole metaphor because our hero's choice or lack thereof is a result of the magic. Yeah. And again, I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, <laughs> but Cinderella 2015 mentioned magic so many times. And I mean, it has magic, but they also kept reiterating that Cinderella had magic inside of her. They never defined it. Like, what does that fucking mean? Yeah, it had no purpose in the building of her character. It had no weight. Yeah, exactly. But talking about magic, the way... Ella gets hers is because a fairy who is notorious for giving really shitty gifts <laughs> shows up. She gives her the gift of obedience. This fairy's name is Lucinda, and I love her styling <laughs> and her entire character, basically. She's kind of dressed like a 2000s pop star. Kind of Britney Spears. Yeah, very Britney Spears-esque. And I like that she's a careless fairy that veers on being cruel. Because, yeah. like, she isn't intentionally cruel, but it kind of shows how careless actions can really harm other people and yourself obviously because Lucinda ends up not being in a good place either but what I like even more is the other fairy <laughs> they have like a household fairy and her whole thing is that she's bad at magic <laughs> I just think it's so fun like this this movie and this world's fairies are very fun like just because you are able to do magic it doesn't mean that you're like good at it they're just so playful with the characters <laughs> and the archetypes and I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I also do like the fact that they raise questions about the consequences of magic. I did think the character of Lucinda was a little bit underdeveloped, but I think I'll go more into it when we talk about the climax because she appears at a very crucial point. So I'm sure we'll be talking about her again. Yes. That's a great point about the consequences of magic, because now that I think about it, you see the fallout of Lucinda's actions, but you also see the fallout of Mandy's action, who is the household fairy. We see later that she accidentally like bewitches her boyfriend into a book, and magic isn't something to be taken lightly, even though like it's not really put in a like scary light. It is seen as more of like an oopsie than anything else, <laughs> but the consequences is still there. It's still definitely a thread in the movie. And no one's a bigger embodiment of that than Ella herself. And speaking of which, I really liked that 
what is usually seen as a positive trait, especially for girls, is very clearly portrayed as a curse in this movie. Oh, because yeah. it shows that any trait, no matter how positive it's considered, can become harmful. And I think it's a nice counterpoint to the traditional fairy tale, like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and also Cinderella, where the princesses don't seem to have many or any flaws at all. So it's nice that here, not only does Ella have her own flaws, but it's actually something that's considered positive, usually. Yeah, that's actually making me really rethink the curse as a narrative tool or like as a symbol because it is the constraint of Ella's life right and if we look at it from the lens of this being a universal enough experience of a young woman there's something to how it is depicted here where it is something thrusted upon you it's something expected of you it's something you should get because like it is supposed to be a good gift Lucinda is short-sighted but she's thinking like oh kid is so fucking fussy I'll give you like a quote-unquote good kid yeah the perfect kid she says yeah and obviously because it is a girl there are so many more layers to that so that societal like expectation and constraint is present here and I think having it be something that is thrusted upon Ella against her will and against like her loved one's will is a really interesting depiction. Yeah, it's like a heightened version of what happens in real life basically. And again, a good use of magic in the movie, a purposeful use. Yeah. So Ella is cursed with this gift of obedience but the narrator says Ella grew up strong of mind and we see her, you know, standing up to people and whatever. So it's like, this didn't really affect like her personality or whatever. Like it makes her do some dumb shit, but she still formed her own personality outside of it. And it's not until she's a little older that they actually tell her about the curse. And she's told that the only person who can break the spell is the fairy who gave her the gift. I know they probably waited that long because any younger and she wouldn't really understand but i'm so curious as to what ella thought was happening yeah <laughs> once ella finds out about the curse it's really fun to see her try to find loopholes out of it so like <laughs> when her mom tells her to practice her mandolin she's like i'll do it but i'm gonna take my time <laughs> yeah and i kind of wish we had seen more of that and seen more of her thinking cleverly to find ways out of the curse there are a fear few times later on in the movie where Ella gets into trouble, but she doesn't really do much to get out of it. It's kind of other people swooping in to save her, which is fine. I mean, I'm not making a damsel in distress comment, but it's more story-wise. It would be more interesting if she used the curse almost as a weapon. Yeah, that is such a great point. Because like, also, what the fuck is the point of showing us her kind of finding these loopholes? And then later on, she just never does. And there are loopholes. Again, I'm also not really making a comment on like, damsel in distress or whatever. It's just like, it would have been fun. I think it does add to her character that we find this out about her character early on. And I guess if I were to maybe explain why it doesn't happen at all later on. Maybe it has something to do with that common experience of as you grow older, you lose confidence in yourself. It's also like she's been dealing with this for so long that at this point, she's just kind of given in to a certain extent. She's tired. Exactly. 
maybe, you know, she's let this curse take over and become more passive, but maybe at some crucial points, we could see her gain that confidence from when she was younger. It didn't need to go away completely. Yeah, there should have been a stronger threat, especially because the climax is her fighting against it. So like, if this was a whole thing, and she betters the prince's life and everything by what she does, and then like, what does he do in return for her? He's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's you dancy, that's what he does. I mean, fulfills all my criteria. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Hey, you know I like confessions of a shopaholic. This is confessions guy! Oh my god, I have such a I have such a hard time with like connecting actors in movies I saw as a kid. Well, you know I thought it was Colin Firth before I even <laughs> watched the movie, so I think I would have liked him better if he was Colin Firth. <gasps> Take that back. <laughs> I think he would be less annoying. Like he didn't see too pretty or something. I don't know. Uh, sorry, that sounded mean to Colin Firth. Colin Firth is also very pretty. <laughs> you insulted them both by complimenting <laughs> them. That was <laughs> masterful. <laughs> yeah, so like, if her arc is regaining this fight within her, that would have been better. Damn. Okay, one thing I did notice is like, there are these moments where they offhandedly, accidentally tell Ella to do something, like stuff your face or whatever with the birthday cake. But then there are also moments where, like, the mom tells her to practice her mandolin. And I'm like, it feels kind of insensitive or something. Yes. I feel like you know about her curse, so you would always be careful to face things in a certain way that you wouldn't be forcing her to do these things because you learned from those accidental moments. Like, I'm not faulting the accidental moments. Obviously, those were not on purpose. But when the mom tells her to practice the mandolin, I'm like, you know your kid can't say no. Like, that's kind of shitty. That's fucked up. I thought of that too. And it seems like Char is the only character who seems to catch on to the fact that Ella does everything she's asked and actually consciously goes out of his way to avoid phrasing things that way. I was surprised that even her mom was doing it. It also would have been better if we see that her mom keeps working around the curse. Maybe there's like a sequence where she's saying things in such weird ways and it's funny, you know? <laughs> it's absurd. And then it's this change in tone when she's dying and then she just says it in very simple terms. You cannot tell anybody about the curse. So you understand like the weight of that promise. Mm. But so yeah, the mom dies. No one's surprised. At least one parent has to die for it to be Cinderella. Yeah, I'm surprised the dad didn't die. He wasn't important enough. He doesn't even know about the curse. Yeah, I did. <laughs> what does he think is going on? He's like, I have the best daughter ever. <laughs> yeah, so only Mandy and the mom know about the curse. And I don't know why. They show scenes with Ella and the mom and Mandy. And then they kind of show the dad like off in his own world. <laughs> and I'm a little like... I don't know what the deal is. I think they didn't develop his character at all. He was, I think he was just there so that there would be someone to remarry and bring in the stepmother. He doesn't serve any other purpose in the story at all. I'm a bit like, okay, he can't know. I know that much. He can't know because if he does, he would be too protective of Ella. Like he would be more conscious of things. But that means like they have to establish some kind of reason for him to not know. And they kind of dropped the ball there, I think. I think they just didn't really explore it. And you know, I think this is a big part of the movie because Cinderella's relationship to her father, I think is pretty important. Like it's a pretty 
important foundation to her character in a lot of iterations of Cinderella. And here, she like I think we're just supposed to assume that that's the case because we know that's the case with Cinderella. And there's that moment where she talks with her dad and she seems to be very caring of him. But we're never shown that they actually are close or anything. I think they should have actually put in the effort to build that relationship. And I'm, I'm not even talking about like additional scenes. Just like in the scenes that we do get, actually show why or why not. I think it would have been interesting for this movie to actually steer away from the norm and have them have kind of a distant relationship. That actually also would explain why the dad would marry the stepmom and be so careless. That would also fit really well into the themes of the movie with, you know, Lucinda's carelessness and everything. That would make sense. Since they were gonna have him be gone for most of the movie anyway, I think having an absent father would have fit right in because he's already doing it <laughs> and it would be an adequate explanation as to why he's not aware just because he's never there. But yeah, so the dad ends up marrying the stepmom for money because they're like about to lose the house or something. <laughs> the mom's name is Dame Olga, <laughs> which I thought was very fun. And the sisters are Hattie and Olive. And Hattie is the president of Prince Char's fan club. They depict it like Prince Char is like a pop star heartthrob kind of thing, which is actually very in line with another Cinderella yeah. story. This is, I think, a great moment to bring up the tone, the setting. So this is set in kind of a fancy land, but it is also very modern. It's kind of set in the early 2000s slash mid-2000s, so they speak like people in the mid-2000s. The soundtrack is full of modern pop songs. Yet they're all dressed very fantasy world-ish. Yeah, but the culture is very much modern, so it's a fun mishmash. One of my favorite parts was Ella and her friend on the stairs but they're moving the like an escalator <laughs> it's my favorite part of the movie i'm not even kidding <laughs> same in details like this you can see snippets of an actual tone to the movie yeah creativity who'd have thought which is again it prevents the movie from feeling generic and like it's just set in a random faraway place even though it is a random faraway place it's fleshed out they've thought about the details of what this world is like and what its history is like and what its people are like and it adds so much substance into yeah. the story talking about its people i also love the way ella talks about the royals in the scene where she's with her stepsisters she talks about their awful policies the way someone in modern times would talk about, like, a shitty politician. They're talking about Prince Char, and she was like, you do know they're responsible for the segregation and blah, 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 blah. And I think, like, just this scene where they're talking about the fan club, and you see how Hattie and Olive talk about Prince Char, and, you know, the way they talk and stuff, is building up that setting and that culture and the way Ella is talking about the subject, but also the subject itself obviously does so much heavy lifting for the world building because that is a big part of the movie, is the oppression of a lot of the magical creatures in this kingdom and the politics of the interim king. It's like a 10 second scene and it does so much. Yeah, it's also very much like Shrek in that theme because... Shrek also had this thread about how the magical creatures were being mistreated yeah. by someone 
who held a lot of power. And just like Shrek, I think they handle it really well because it's not just there for the sake of it. It's very intertwined with the story. It actually reminds me of another review that I read from Austin Chronicle that said that the movie quote, veers wildly from juvenile comedy to romance to morality lesson, never quite finds its footing. And I disagree with this review because it never feels like the movie is moralizing or trying to make a statement on anything. The fact that the royals are mistreating certain types of people is very integrated into the plot and also in the development of Ella and the prince's relationship. And so I, I think it's well done. Yeah, for one, I would hope they're moralizing about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what it's you mean. It's never fun to sit through a movie that lays out its themes yeah. and tries to lecture at you instead of... Telling a story that conveys this message. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but also that review is like, yeah, that's what a story is. You <laughs> jump from like light moment to heavier moment and then there's a moral. Like, do you know what... what? <laughs> I guess what they're saying is like they don't do it well. They jump from thing to thing and we're not successful. And obviously that's the part where we disagree. But I just thought that was a funny review. <laughs> yeah, the way they phrased it, I guess. They must have enjoyed Cinderella 2015 a lot more because it's flat from start to finish. <laughs> yeah. It's also like without the quote unquote moralizing, then what would the story be? Because like, like you said, it's the main plot of the movie. That's what the movie is about. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the stepmother and stepsisters move into Ella and her dad's house. And because of her curse, Ella is forced to give up her closet and her clothes and also her mother's necklace. I thought Ella losing her mother's necklace was a nice symbol of her basically losing sight of what her mother told her before she died. Because she'd said, what's inside you is stronger than any spell. And Ella losing the necklace is basically her forgetting that she's more powerful than she thinks yeah it's simple but it works definitely works but Hattie kind of notices this weird behavior and it all comes to a head when they're in community college and there's a debate class which is I guess a staple for Anne Hathaway movies yeah she's like <laughs> Zac Efron with the basketball yeah not signing a contract unless there's debate also, this is beside the point, but the number of times I almost referred to her as Mia was too many. <laughs> and the number of times I called Char Colin first. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but they debate Edgar's policies, and Edgar is the interim king who is Prince Char's uncle. And Hattie tells her to bite her tongue, and Ella does it, and she realizes that Ella somehow always obeys what she's told, and this is when Hattie starts using it against Ella actively. But for the time being, Hattie can't care about Ella. Do you know who's coming to town? <laughs> Santa? <laughs> Princhard himself! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like how he and his uncle are visiting for a mall opening. Yeah! <laughs> Very, very pop star. Teen pop star. It's great. And we get some exposition about how the prince's coronation is coming up and his uncle is encouraging him to gain people's trust. And he's like, what, what do you mean? I hate him. He doesn't know anything about the state of the kingdom and his uncle continues to misinform him, blaming the ogres and the giants. And Prince Char just accepts all of this without question. And yeah, it is frustrating, but it gives us somewhere to go. 
<laughs> throughout the story. <laughs> yes. So the emotional anchor for Prince Char is his dad's murder, which is supposedly done by an ogre. And so this is kind of what started the recent political developments. I mean, we already know the uncle is evil, right? <laughs> so <laughs> obviously Edgar's play is to have the ogre's murder of the king being a reason for his bigoted policies. And that's such a real thing. <laughs> like, that's how it works in real life. These disasters that happen get pinned onto a group of people, and then that is being used to justify really heinous things that a political party or a government can do in the name of protecting themselves or justice or whatever else, and fully using that to harm large groups of people. I mean, it's such a great depiction of this kind of thing you're right even though edgar has his moments as a very typical you know cunning villain i think overall his actions and his motivations and his relationship with prince char are very interesting i really like the setup that they have because on one hand you can clearly tell that edgar is you know evil, evil. <laughs> But on the other hand, even though it's so in your face and obvious, you start to question what's wrong with Prince Char and why he can't tell. But then you learn that Edgar is this father figure for him and has raised him since he was a child and lost his own father. And I think that juxtaposition is so interesting. And I really wish they had built on it more. I really wish we had felt more of Prince Char's betrayal when he finds out what Edgar has really been up to. I also am a little bit confused as to what exactly Edgar's plan is because in the climax, it seems like he wants to kill off Prince Char so he can be king himself. So my question is, why doesn't he just do it? What is he waiting for? It would have made more sense to me if his plan was that because Char seems to be so blind to his true motivations that his plan is to have Char be the king himself, but he's going to manipulate him behind the scenes. And I feel like that would be much more nefarious and even more scary than just wanting to kill Char off and take the power for himself. So I, I wish they had picked that if they were going to drag on this whole thing about Edgar not killing Char himself or maybe have Edgar tr continuously try to kill Char, but he's failing. <laughs> yeah. That would have been such a funny gag if that's what it is. I was going to say, I was of the same opinion because I was like, why doesn't he just kill Char himself? Like he's had plenty of opportunity. The only thing I can think of is, I lied. <laughs> I can think of two things. <laughs> How smart. <laughs> Thank you. That's two more than I'm capable of. <laughs> I don't know if this lines up with the timeline later, but maybe he only decides to kill Char once Char starts speaking up. Like Char starts bringing mm. up, hey, what's up with the giants and the ogres and stuff? Do you know this shit is happening? And so he realizes he doesn't have Char under his thumb anymore. But what I think is probably a stronger or at least a more interesting reason is that Prince Char is so beloved clearly by the kingdom and I think the more interesting possibility is that Prince Char has too much power like people are too loyal to him and if he dies even if they don't blame Edgar for the death it might incite something in the people 
And what I think is really interesting is that in the scene where they're going to the mall opening, he is using the people's love for Prince Char to gain, I mean, he says it himself to gain trust and everything. But also in this case, obviously, it's because he's doing this really heinous thing. So he needs us. He needs the people to be on his side in any capacity. That's really interesting. I can see that. I mean, clearly there is opposition to his policies. So he isn't an all-powerful, universally loved ruler. Yeah. One small thing I was going to say is that we first see Prince Char and Edgar in this carriage. And I really liked the contrast of Edgar's look versus Char's. His outfit is very red and black and very opulent. And because it's echoed in the red mm. interior of the carriage, I think it does a great job of showing how surrounded Char is by his uncle's influence. Whereas he's wearing light colors, white and blue, which very much match Ella's colors. Yeah, he's ensnared by the uncle's world. And wow, that's a great catch. While we do see screaming fans at the mall opening, we also see Ella and her best friend protesting ogre side and the giant land grab. It's very reminiscent to like the terms we would use in, you know, more modern protests and stuff. Yeah. So at the mall opening, Prince Charles fans basically swarm him and he's forced to run away and prince char and ella basically literally run into each other while he's trying to escape his fans and that's how they first meet he knocks her over <laughs> and they hide yeah very meet cute weirdly it reminds me of camp rock or maybe starstruck it feels very like tropey not in a bad way in a fun way like this movie plays a lot with modern tropes that you would often find in stories aimed at teenagers just very fun <laughs> yeah I think that's one of the movie's strengths as well, the fact that they're able to combine things like this. Like, the fact that he's equated to a celebrity and a heartthrob, it plays on those tropes of movies aimed at young audiences and kind of makes it fun for them. But behind it all, there's also like a heavier themes and messages that also cater towards an older audience. So just like in Shrek, it balances that really well and it makes the movie more interesting to a wider audience i don't think it's like overly complicated or like particularly adult it's not like stuff that you would miss as a child i think in this movie it's almost like a i mean they're not doing this but it kind of proves that movies for younger audiences or even in this case for young female audiences do have substance and merit and stuff so like even when they are using these tropes that are seen possibly as shallow or whatever that does not need to be the case and that is far from inherent to those tropes or that genre so i think just treating its audience like actual humans is great because i think it still very much is a children's movie like but again that's another argument for like it doesn't mean that you're supposed to throw out you know show don't tell so the kids can understand you just have to show you know a little <laughs> slower <laughs> A little more obviously. But so this this movie is just a great example of that. Yeah. But yeah, they run into each other and Ella, Ella immediately hates him. Hates him. <laughs> <laughs> Which like I get. Like to Ella, he's like this politician who for all she knows supports these really awful policies. 
Yeah, I like that there is a reason behind why she treats Prince Char with so much disdain from the get-go. Yeah, it's not just because she's not like other girls. Exactly, that's what <laughs> I was gonna say. I understand that the point is that Prince Char grows, but I'm just so irritated by him. I'm like, you're so ignorant. Actually, this fits really well with the theme of carelessness because like, his ignorance is actively harming all of these people because he could do something about it, but he's so careless. For example, in the scene, Ella brings up how he stole land and he outright is like, I've never stolen anyone's land. And it's like, even if you don't know like the extent of your uncle's political maneuverings, it's like, how dumb are you? Obviously you've stolen land. What are you what are you talking about? Like I'm a little he, he I maybe he's giving me too much like privileged white guy energy or something. I don't know. Even aside from the uncles doing, like obviously you've stolen land. What the fuck are you talking about? You're a prince. Yeah, as much as I want to sympathize with Prince Char, I agree with everything you said he is very clueless and a part of me is like it's like when you're a child and you believe everything your parents tell you and you don't question it because they've got the ultimate authority and they know everything so of course they have to be right except that that's not an excuse because he is a grown man <laughs> yeah i'm a little like were you not taught anything and i guess maybe this is i mean i don't know maybe this is the lived experience of someone in this position like i'm trying to imagine someone as privileged as he is maybe like super sheltered taught very specific things but i think if that were the case i think that's the only like depiction of his character that would make me quote-unquote sympathize where in which they actually show us like basically his abuse right like he's being kept actively ignorant and stunted and you know all of these really awful things in his upbringing but they don't really do that or at least like they don't go out of their way to do that see that must have been the case because he grew up around Edgar he was brought up by Edgar and I can't imagine Edgar has been always upfront about what he's doing so I imagine a lot of his ignorance is due to the fact that things have actively been kept from him and it just hasn't occurred to him to even question his uncle's authority but yeah I, I do wish they had emphasized Edgar's hand in this more because the way they frame it it kind of seems like he just can't be bothered like it just hasn't occurred to him like he's stupid <laughs> yeah exactly i'm just like if it's this bad i feel like there was like straight up abuse i don't mean like physical abuse i mean like you know like he was done wrong and i feel like i think this is actually I, i'm realizing you know this is a part of the movie that i really don't like like they kind of fail with this they should have actually shown like how wrong the prince was i think they kind of are onto something but don't really develop it with Prince Char because they have this whole thread about how he feels like he doesn't have a choice in his situation much like Ella but with the way that they have written and developed his character it kind of comes off as like oh boohoo I have so much privilege you know but like we have been discussing if they had emphasized Edgar's involvement in his upbringing more and showed us how Edgar has been mistreating him that thread of him not having a choice would have been much more interesting because then it would have been less about oh no I have power I didn't ask for and it would have been more that I'd 
don't have a choice in how much I know about my own kingdom, that kind of thing. That would have brought us more clarity as to why he's so ignorant about everything that's going on because then we would know he's actively been kept from accessing this information and the parallels between him and Ella would have been stronger as well. But that being said, I do like the parallel that we do get. I mean, like we've been talking about, it could be better, but I do like that they find themselves in kind of similar positions where they feel like they don't have a choice and you can see that they react really differently to their situations, whereas Char is more complacent and kind of passive and lets life just go past him. Ella is much more proactive and tries to actively fight against her circumstances, or at least she did when she was younger. You know, to me, this movie or this character fails to an extent where I did not see that parallel. I didn't really feel like, aside from the one moment where he was like, I'm a royal and I don't want to be, aside from that one scene, we don't really, or I didn't feel like Prince Charles trapped. But he never expressed an actual want to do something and then he was like stopped or whatever. And I think like we've already said, like emphasizing how he was so sheltered would have helped as is until you put it out. I see now obviously what they were going for. But until you put it out, I kind of didn't see it. I was just like, I don't get it. I'm like, I feel like you would have been fine if you went up to your uncle and was like, listen, I want to leave. Like I'm going to do my own thing. I don't think this is for me. I think the uncle would have been like, great, <laughs> right? Don't you think? <laughs> He's like, that's one less thing to do. Probably. <laughs> it's how I feel. Although I get what they were trying to do now. I don't think they did it as well as they could have. Because they also, because of the duality that they have going on with Char being both a ruler and also kind of a celebrity-like figure, they've got this whole trappings of fame thing going on as well. Like when he meets Ella, he tells her that he's not really a fan of this whole situation where he's got fans chasing after him and everything. So they kind of hint at it, but I don't think they pull it off that well. Char's interest in Ella kind of ties into this too because he immediately takes an interest in her and I wish there was more of a basis as to why. Like if he had realized that his situation is similar to Ella's, that would have made it more believable as to why he was interested in Ella. Whereas yeah. <laughs> the way they did it is very, you're not like, like the other, other girls. Yeah, like the other girls. is a bit of a letdown. <laughs> I think that would have been a better way to parallel him and Ella. To have him trapped in this position more on the fame side than the royal side. I think that's what they should have leaned on. Yeah, less boohoo privilege too. Because, I mean, he was born into this. Into this position of power. But instead of complaining about the power, he's complaining about the side effects of being born in the public eye. And that's fair enough. He didn't ask to be looked upon as a celebrity. And I think a really fun gag they could have had us like half the uncle act like an agent or something where like they're going to the small opening and Shar is all sulky because he's like I don't know why we're doing this and blah 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 and he's like you know like being that sleazy agent guy that would have been a funny gag so for one that would have been a great way of going about this I think my second point is that I totally agree the reason why Shar likes her is so weird like I don't get it <laughs> he finds her disdain refreshing Ugh, get the fuck out of here <laughs> I really don't like him. <laughs> I think his interest in Ella should have been that Ella is talking all the shit about him, right? Like, you stolen, like, you're responsible for the ogre side, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, hold on, what are, you, what are you talking about? And that's why, like, he goes with her because he discovers this 
well of information, basically, the source of information. That would have been so much better. And in fact, I'm thinking, I know it wouldn't have worked with some of the story beats because we need them to meet early on for her to get an invitation to his coronation and everything. But instead of having them meet here, it might have been interesting if they had met once Ella was already on her quest to find Lucinda and she's got the encyclopedia book person with her and Prince Char joins them on the journey because he wants to find out more instead of having him swoop in when they were in trouble and save them out of nowhere I feel like this would have been more natural if they ran into each other but I know that shifts around a lot of things in the story I understand why they didn't do that no I think that still could have worked if like while they're on the thing he's like you're great you should like come to the ball thing and then you can like plead your case whatever Mm, there you found a solution yeah (laughs) (laughs) but so Ella like left her back behind or something and so he tells her to stay put and then he'll grab it and so Ella's frozen in place (laughs) and there's this (laughs) sequence with like a horse and cart coming her way and it's like about to mow her down I guess and honestly (laughs) they they go ham on the sequence it's so nerve-wracking and it feels like the danger is real. <laughs> also, the guy is like so scary. He has like a hood on or I don't know. <laughs> it's the Grim Reaper. I was gonna say! <laughs> I was literally gonna say! The guy looks like the Grim Reaper. But yeah, the prince comes back just in time to knock Ella out of the way. And they're sitting there when Hattie and Olive arrive. And Hattie tries to talk to the prince. <laughs> But he runs away. He doesn't he doesn't humor her. Hattie as a crazed fan is so fun. Like <laughs> I really like this. I think it fits her role and her character really well. And it adds a, another layer to her desire to be with the yeah. prince. Like it's not just like everyone wants to be with the prince. But she is specifically like the president of his fan club. It's such a great translation. It's such a great adaptation to like the modern culture. And again, without fail, it seems like the stepsisters always have more fun in these movies. They always have the more fun arcs and it always seems like they're having a great time. It's <laughs> <laughs> even in the in the duller movies, shall we say. <laughs> but we do get this exchange with Ella and her best friend. And the friend outright asks her, like, why she always does what Hattie says. The way this happens is actually really interesting, like, the way it's phrased. Because she says it kind of like the way you ask your friend, like, I mean, I maybe she does say this, actually. Like, why do you do what your sister always tells you to do? Like, it's a very natural question and very common question, you know? It's more like friends being like, stop following everything your older brother tells you to do or something, you know? Like, it, it's just the fact that that connects with, like, the curse is just... I don't know, it feels so well-constructed. Hmm. And have it work with all of these intersecting relationships, just so fun. I did not even think of that, but you're right. Ella is initially inclined to disagree that she doesn't, but immediately after, Hattie calls her over, and she and Olive start instructing her to steal things. And of course she has to, and she ends up stealing this pair of glass shoes glass slippers you might say (laughs) Mm, yeah (laughs) who would have thought but she's spotted by a guard and has to run and she starts getting chased through the mall and ultimately ends up getting arrested because the guard tells her to freeze and she literally freezes in midair which is really fun another great take on a common thing we see in real life (laughs) yeah you're right it's like a visual comedic 
true. The way they play around with that here is very fun. Seriously, this movie is just such like a love letter to so many things. To film, to comedy, to teen girls, to fairy tales. I just love it. <laughs> I also really love the glass slippers. The way they show up in this movie. I think it's a significant enough moment, but it's not too like winky wink, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And maybe this is a small thing, but this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. I love the set design and the costuming, obviously, but the set design is just perfect. And the glass slippers fit so well in its setting. There are these other glass trinkets around it, and it's like in a market, and it doesn't stand out at all. It's not like a magical shoe or whatever. It's just like one of the many kind of dusty glass trinkets. Like it fits in that world, is what I'm trying to say. It fits in that setting. That's a really great observation. And it kind of makes makes me think about Cinderella 2015 <laughs> because in that movie I think they gave the shoes some kind of magical properties that allowed them to not fit anyone but Cinderella and they imbued this object with a mysterious magical power which kind of explained away part of the story I guess whereas it seems like in this movie and in the 1950 version I don't know the way they use the shoe as a symbol or use it as a device seems a lot more creative so like in in the 1950 version I really liked that it wasn't a magical object the shoe kept falling off because it was a trait of Cinderella's that that happens it's not the shoe it's it's Cinderella it tells us more about her character and yeah like you said here it serves a different purpose to help add to the world and it fits in with that world whereas in the 2015 version it's like I guess it kind of stands for everything that's wrong with the movie it's just beautiful on the outside but lacking in meaning yeah. And I mean, we already talked about this in the Cinderella episode, but like, they also got rid of what to me was the most interesting part about the shoe fitting thing, which is that it's supposed to fit any woman off the street. That's the fucking point. That's why this is how they try to find Cinderella, because the king wants the prince Anybody. to marry whoever the fuck. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> got angry again. But yes, Ella is arrested. And the stepmother is upset at her and Hattie makes her say that her best friend put her up to it. And so they make her kind of shun the best friend and it's very sad. This incident with Ella's best friend seems to be the last straw that pushes her to try to find Lucinda and get her to take back the curse but I didn't really buy it I like the foundation they set up for the friendship but it isn't really developed enough and once Ella sets off on her journey her goal of salvaging her friendship doesn't ever come up again in the story and we don't even get a resolution or a reconciliation to this plot line I think the part that they had built up really well is actually Ella's character like her I guess her politics <laughs> her morals and so what I bought in the moment was that she's so horrified by what they made her say so I agree with you to me what landed more was her being horrified by that than it is the she doesn't care about the you know, friend. dissolution <laughs> of her friendship I think she cares about the friend but what makes it like extremely icky is like the way they made her and that friendship but you're right I do wish they had done a better job with the friendship because it doesn't go anywhere and it wasn't really that strong I just you're right that's a really weak part of the movie I agree but I mean I see your point too but 
yeah, Ella decides to find Lucinda and this is where Mandy introduces Ella to her boyfriend, Benny, <laughs> who is also a book. And he's basically the Google of the universe and he can show Ella where Lucinda is at any point. And they find out that she's in Giantville for a wedding. I cannot believe that this is the first time Mandy has introduced him to anybody in 20 years. Seriously. 20 years i think mandy should be in jail <laughs> i think it also would have been better if we had seen in previous scenes like hints of mandy like hiding something or like talking to something in a corner and and then she's like nothing <laughs> or whatever so to see that he's been around because like the way this scene happens it sounds like she's kept him in a drawer for 20 years yeah yeah <laughs> and especially Given the fact that at the end of the movie, she turns him back to a human in about two minutes makes it seem like she's kept him as a book on purpose so that he can't run away. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> I think what would have been really interesting is she did like accidentally turn into a book like all these years ago. And maybe it wasn't even a secret or something. Like, he's just been a book this whole time and he's, like, one of the people in Alice's life. But that's the reason why she won't even try to lift mm. the curse. Because she's so traumatized, right? Like, if it's framed as something more serious and traumatizing and Mandy is, like, kind of paralyzed, like, she can't bring herself to do anything because she's scared of hurting anyone ever again. And that's kind of one of the reasons that she can't try to lift Ella's curse. I think it would have also been stronger if they didn't have this rule about, like, only the fairy who gave you the curse can lift it because of how it ends up being broken later. If the problem isn't that only Lucinda can lift it. The problem is that Mandy can't even try because of this really traumatic thing in her past. That would have been really, really interesting. And it's like she's on the opposite end of the scale to Lucinda because, yeah. because of her carelessness in the past. Now she won't try at all. So that would have fit in really well with the themes. They should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Ella sets off on her quest and immediately <laughs> runs into trouble. She finds this elf named Slenon captured by some guys. And she kind of tries to help. And Slenon tells her to like <laughs> round kick him and all of these other fight moves. And my question is like, is it not that she can only do things that she knows? Would that make sense? Like, how would she know what that <laughs> is? Like, it means like her body has some kind of connection to like the universe that tells it what to do, you know? <laughs> And I'm like, that would have been interesting if that's one of the loopholes. If she can't obey because she doesn't know how to do them. That's a really great point. That should be a loophole because otherwise she's basically omnipotent. I guess this makes for like a funnier scene. It does. I really liked seeing Ella's curse have a different use. While it troubles her a lot, it was so fun to see it be wielded like a weapon. It was kind of like in a video game with Slanon instructing her and her carrying out the moves. And I wish the story had built upon this and had Ella learn how to basically appropriate the effects of the curse to her benefit before she learns how to break it. That would have been an interesting part of her arc. Yeah. That scene is really fun because, like you said, it is like a video game. The way they shot the actual fighting moves is very like smooth and accelerated. And it's just great. Again, it's it's another really fun film-based 
visual gag kind of but yet this should have been built upon and we talked about this while we were watching the movie but someone should have known about her curse so whenever she's told to do one thing or another they're able to tell her no don't do that and then she she won't have to because at least once the prince tells her to do something and then takes it back by telling her never mind actually now that i think about it a really funny gag would have been if she has a walkman with her all the time with like headphones If she can't hear it, she can't do it. Yeah. Or like, whenever something like that happens, she presses on a button and then she hears like, don't do it. Or she hears like, do round house kick or something <laughs> that she doesn't know how to do, but like her body can if, she, if it's being told to. But yeah, she just has like a soundboard. <laughs> That would be hilarious. That would be great. But actually, the way you phrased it makes me think it kind of is like a plot hole that she can do anything. I don't know that it's a plot hole. It was just something that occurred to me. I think it is. Because it's like with the mandolin practice, I was like, why doesn't her mom just tell her to play it well? well. (laughs) Yeah, you did say that. That's a good point. So it's like if she can do things out of nowhere, then technically she should be able to do that too. So I think... The extent of her abilities is a little bit of a plot hole. I don't think they completely thought it through. Yeah. If it isn't a plot hole, I do think like this choice is interesting that it is out of her hands. But I mean, if they had explored this more, I think it would have been interesting with the mandolin thing. Adding on to it, like for her to, you know, growing up, she had to learn kind of the value of learning something and just being able to do it. Like what is the value of just being good at something? Yeah. And then when she's giving up the curse, it's also like she's giving up a power in a way. Yeah. Because she knows what she's sacrificing if she doesn't have this ability anymore. She won't be able to just do anything out of nowhere. They really should have played up like the good things about it. I mean, like the way she has turned it into something she can use. Yeah. I said, or maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's just the <laughs> plot of every superhero movie. Not that I think about it. <laughs> Never mind. But yeah. They kind of get away from the guys and they get to know each other over dinner and Slendon hates singing and dancing which apparently the elves are forced to do and he wants to be a lawyer but he can't be one because of the elven restrictions. When he reveals his dream of being a lawyer, Ella tells him to come along with her and try to get an audience with the prince. So the two of them set off together the decision to go is also backdropped by edgar's soldiers rounding up the elfin singers because they're about to be forced to perform at the coronation and again i keep saying this but that's like constantly happening throughout the movie like this oppression of all the magical creatures and just like the political aspect is the main plot there's not really any moment where it's not there It's very ingrained into the story. But yes, on their journey, they run into ogres and they want to eat them. (laughs) I actually really love this. Ella tries to tell them that she's (laughs) pro-ogre. And she's like, I I held a protest or something. And she's like, did did you hear about it? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I think that's a great depiction of like one of those moments where it's not like Ella's actions are meaningless or performative or whatever, but it is a funny joke of like, this is the first time you're actually meeting the people you're supposedly supporting and like, they don't even know that you exist. And obviously it's like poking fun at this whole concept or situation. And it's the way they do it in the movie is funny. It's also like, they're kind of touching on the whole like, they are trying to eat them. They're not angels, you know, but like, doesn't negate like the fact that they deserve like rights 
shirts and stuff. It's just a really funny scene, the way the scene goes down. I love it. Yeah, it's very fun. Actually, this is also another aspect to the whole a political thing that we're talking about. But Nish, one of the ogres, says that humans took everything from them. So even this conflict between i guess ogres and humans supposedly does stem from edgar's doing so like the supposed murder of the king by ogres both justifies his actions against ogres and other magical creatures and also fuels a conflict between ogres and humans so it's like it's just so well done (laughs) it's so it's so great yeah and i like that the story never lets you forget that this is happening that this is the reality. I feel like that just gives it so much substance compared to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, actually, it's really funny because Nush and the other ogres kind of just tell them to get into the pot and Ella just does it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, guess who comes swooping in? Santa? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But no, it's friend Char. And he kind of frees him from the ogre. And there's like this moment where he confronts the ogre and he's like, did you kill my father? And it's interesting. I don't know what to think of it. It's a little, not weird, but I'm just like, is he just seeing an ogre? And he's like, you killed my father. I'm like, there are a million ogres in the kingdom, I would assume. But yeah, I, don't know. I feel like, I don't know, Char is just so dumb. I feel like they should have made him more, not dumb, but just manipulated. And maybe like he has this vendetta and... He's not like, did you kill my father? It's like, I will let you go if you give me information about Mm, who killed my father. That makes more sense. When you put it that way, it really is so stupid of him to think that out of (laughs) all the ogres out there, he's just happened to stumble upon the one, the single one that killed his father, apparently. (laughs) It's so weird. He's like, he's an eight-year-old boy. I really, I don't, I don't like him. I don't get why Ella likes it. I just, I don't. Yeah. This is the moment where Nish tells the prince that why would they kill king florian because they lived in peace during king florian's reign so it's just another building block to that whole history in that world you would think that these little things you know what ella said to him what the ogre said to him would slowly start to pierce his ignorance and kind of make him suspicious of what edgar is doing but it really doesn't up until the very end he's so trusting of edgar until it's apparent that edgar was going after his own life it's like that's what it takes you you didn't have any hint as to how evil Edgar was before this? No one ever gave you a clue. I don't even understand what he thinks is happening. He doesn't think that's the thing. Because <laughs> he's always like, no, Edgar doesn't know this is happening. I'm like, I don't understand who he thinks is doing this. <laughs> anyway. All that aside, I think him arriving right on time is really convenient. I don't like the story-wise because it's very just out of the blue and... His presence there is never explained. He was hunting. (laughs) But that's wrong. (laughs) Just because it's done doesn't mean it's right. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't. I don't know what he's doing there. But no, he he should. Like I said, he should be on this like on this like mission. Yeah, he maybe he's like, after what you told me, I've set out to meet, you know, these people to find out what's been going on. It's, they never even acknowledge the fact that he's there. He's just expected to be there. His radar pinged. Someone's in trouble. He's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he saw the, the smoke from the pot. <laughs> 
But yeah, the prince offers to take her to her destination. So they're on horses now. Perfect opportunity to circle around each other and they missed it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So embarrassing. It's so funny when the prince is fishing oh, yeah. for like Ella's relationship <laughs> status. Like it's so hilarious. The way the scene happens, it's another like play on the genre and time period. This is also where Prince Char brings up his I didn't have a choice in the matter and Ella kind of gives him a reality check about what it really means to not have a choice since Edgar is taking away all of these people's rights. And as stupid (laughs) as he is, Ella is kind of leading him to understand the situation and open his eyes to reality. And in this particular case, she rides off into the distance and he follows her and they come across a field where giants are working and the prince finally realizes that they're not being treated well. And I really like how even on his quest to deny it, he is faced with the reality of the situation. I was going to say that I really don't like this scene, but that's not true. I like this scene. I really don't like Shar. <laughs> really? I think this is the scene that made me think that he wasn't just like sheltered or whatever, but that he's a dick. <laughs> Because, like, Slenin tries to talk to him about the elfin restrictions, basically. And the prince is just like, go talk to my uncle. He'll listen. And then he'll let you become a lawyer. Like, for one, that's not really the fucking point. Like, it's not that Slenin himself should be a lawyer. It's that the elfin restrictions... Like, I mean, part of it is the way, like, Slenin words it. But it's clear, like, the prince just, like has nothing in his head or something like what is going on what is this conversation like you're so fucking dumb and (laughs) basically he brushes Slenin off and it's like just go tell somebody else but I love how Ella reacts because she seems so disgusted by it as she should be she's like what the fuck is wrong with you like she was basically like you're going to be king soon is that it's not even about like is this how you're gonna act as king it's that you're about to be king and you you still act like this and she runs away but the prince chases after her like you said but the way he does it's like maybe it's like the direction of the acting or something maybe that's why i hate for sure but the way he acts it's like he doesn't understand like ella put him in his place but he's just like hey why are you being so mean yeah. and i'm like sure <laughs> To me, that's the more frustrating part is how long he really takes to understand. Initially, I'm more willing to put up with it, I guess, because we need a flawed character for him to develop. And I really do understand his complacency and the fact that he's so used to leaving the decisions up to his uncle, which I assume he's been doing all his life. So he's so used to doing it and there has been no one around him to tell him the truth and to push him to be better so he just hasn't done better so i was more willing to put up with it in the beginning but once he meets ella and this whole story starts he still takes so long to understand he takes so long to doubt edgar that it gets annoying so i mean i share your frustration (laughs) to some degree because it is annoying i think my problem is like they kind of fail at depicting his flaw because the solution we're given is that he finds out right 
about Edgar and about all of these things. But the flaw that we are presented with, like the way they depict it, is not ignorance. It is stupidity <laughs> or something. It's like, even if he had known, he wouldn't have understand what that meant. I think that's why it doesn't work for me. Like the flaw and the solution doesn't match for me. It doesn't seem like the flaw is just he doesn't know what's happening. Feels like he is being told what is happening and he... Yeah, he doesn't get it. <laughs> doesn't get it. Yeah. You're right. I think it would have been interesting to instead portray him as... You know how in the carriage and everything, he's like supposed to be the figurehead, right? Because Edgar is talking about how much image matters. And he is supposed to be the face of the royals. And then with this scene where he doesn't know anything and he just tells Lennon to like take it up with someone who cares or whatever. And so in this moment, and I think it fits really well with how the scene goes down and how Ella reacts to it if he's an empty shirt, if he's a politician who is only there for, not like he's only there for the power, but like he doesn't have any substance. Yeah, he's the face of the royal family, but not the body. He's also not in control of the body, just like Ella. <laughs> yeah. Hey, see, that would have also been a great parallel. So like, I think that would have been a better arc for him as well if he ends up growing like an awareness and a spine and it actually means something to him to have this power. You're right. He doesn't really have a satisfying arc or any kind of arc. I mean, he kind of, like you said, he finds out, but that doesn't automatically make him a stronger ruler. <laughs> Yeah. They arrive at the giant's wedding in the next scene. It's a party. <laughs> the princess is there for a heart to heart. And Ella says he's there as a friend to hear their complaints. I do find it hard to believe that all of these people would just take him at his word. Like, I would be under the impression, as Ella was, that he is more than complicit that he does hold these really awful political beliefs yeah maybe if he had brought up the king or something a philosophy of his dad's that he passed on to him or something like that that might have been something to convince the others that he's more like his dad than he is his uncle but yeah they do accept him very easily <laughs> The conversation that Shar has with the giant he's talking to is also him promising to buy back the giant's farms after his coronation to give back to the giant. But I'm like, this is like Slenon all over again. It's not the one giant. Like, <laughs> do you not understand? He's like, yeah, let me fix it with my money and then you, sir, specifically, will get your farm back. And it's like, Shar. <laughs> <laughs> this man is so dumb. I think this part of the story, like, it worked with Slenin. With Slenin, we are supposed to see him as, like, what the fuck are you talking about? But in this scene, it's portrayed as a good thing that he's doing. And, like, it's not like he's, it's a bad thing that he's doing, but he's, like, completely missing the point. But the movie doesn't really depict it like that. They're just like, oh, Char's growing. He understands. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? What is going on? I feel like the Char should have been like, after my coronation, I will abolish this law or whatever is happening and that would have been char growing but the movie depicts this stupid fucking quote-unquote solution as char growing and like ella kind of goes along with it she she's like oh you you're such a nice guy and it's like what is happening i just this word really infuriated me yeah and at the end of the scene she also tells him that she thinks he's going to be a great king <laughs> which no, is he's like... not <laughs> 
Ella is gonna be a great queen. Ella is the Lily Moskovitz of this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ella doesn't find Lucinda though. Instead, she sings a little song, <laughs> does a little dance. They have a little talk where they trauma dump on each other. Um. <laughs> Do they even? You know what? I wish the prince had said more about the uncle. He only says like he raised me and stuff. But I think this would have been the moment where he could reveal some much more meaningful things. It seems like the stuff he says is too generic. Yeah. They bond over having lost their parent and the fact that their parents used to sing to them. It's, yeah, it is very, I mean, it's serious, but it's... Is that what they bond over? I think that's called a lullaby. <laughs> Every parent did that. Everyone turns around and they're like, my mom used to sing too. Mine still does. You know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Oh my god. <laughs> that Jizzies. is my jam. <laughs> yeah. But he offers to let her into the Hall of Records <laughs> where they keep all the census reports, which is very funny. But he tells her he can pull a few strings and she should come with him to the palace. I don't know why this pissed me off. I think I just don't like Char. So Well, it's a continuation of what he's been doing so far, which is using his privilege for personal favors, basically, instead of looking at the bigger picture. Except here, it's not. The situation is different. Here, it's he's helping out a friend. Maybe it's just the way he words it. I wish the movie, the dialogue had just been like, oh, well, actually, the Hall of Records has the census. You can check there. But they word it in a way that's like, you can't usually go, but but I'll take you there, <laughs> kind of <Yeah>. thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I have one question. I don't understand why Ella never just tells the prince that, like, no, Edgar is doing this. Because the prince is going on and on about, like, how he thinks the uncle will change things once he knows. Like, I understand that maybe Ella is more aware of the prince's, you know, situation. It's like that kind of thing where, like, you can't say something against that person or else it's just going to drive your loved one away. But they haven't done a good job of establishing this, of establishing, like, the prince's situation. So I, I don't see how Ella would be privy to it, so much so that she wouldn't even speak against Edgar. Yeah. Like you said, this would have been a good point for her to gain that insight into Shar's relationship with his uncle and maybe she's reached the end of her tether and she's about to say something but she realizes how much Edgar means to him and she holds back but yeah no we don't really really see that at this point there are multiple moments where the prince tells her to do something and then takes it back and then rewords it as a request I'm like does the prince know at this point I, I'm kind of confused I don't understand I feel like he's too stupid to know exactly <laughs> what's going on but it seems like he suspects something and maybe he thinks it's just a character flaw of Ella's that she'll do anything she's asked. And so he goes out of his way to rephrase it. And in doing so, he unintentionally <laughs> avoids the curse. <laughs> his stupidity <laughs> helps, at least in this case. <laughs> yeah. But so they do get to Lamere, I think, is where the palace is. They go through the gates and then Slenin is barred from entering because he's an elf. And I don't understand how they don't notice that Slenin is left behind. Yeah. But they enter right as the fan club is taking a tour of the palace. And again, it's a really funny 
gag. But as they escape the horde of girls, they run into Edgar. And his pet? (laughs) His snake. Yeah. Okay, the thing with the snake, the snake had been spying on them on their journey, and this doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. I was so confused. (laughs) We kept seeing the snake, and then nothing comes of it. I don't understand. I thought the snake was going to find out about Ella's curse and pass that information on to Edgar. But he gets that information from her stepsisters anyway. So yeah, you're right. It doesn't amount to anything. But yeah, they they meet and Edgar is kind of suspicious of Ella. But he's really prompted to look into her when Ella's at this point gone off to the Hall of Records. And Char tells Edgar that he wants to ask Ella to marry him. And this prompts Edgar to talk to Hattie and Olive and he finds out about her curse and immediately starts testing it out oh yeah (laughs) this is also when the prince brings up like the state of the kingdom and the uncle tries to rush it off he's like we'll talk about it later and then the prince kind of puts his foot down and is like but we will talk about it so that might have been why he ends up choosing to kill off the prince but yeah he barges into the hall of records and starts telling Ella to do these random things. And I think it reveals a lot about him as a character that he plays around with her like she's a doll. Because it's not even like he immediately makes her do something dangerous. It's more about his amusement and power trip. I think it just it adds on to his manipulative nature characterization. He basically tells Ella about his scheme. And he tells her to kill Shar at midnight and he tells her the details he was like sure will take you to the hall of mirrors and ask a question at midnight and <laughs> ella says how do you know all this and i'm like what do you mean how do you know all this <laughs> he's his uncle like at that point it's clear like it's like some kind of romantic gesture or something right if if she doesn't already know that he's gonna propose i'm like what do you mean how do you know all this this isn't like some <laughs> hidden secret th- you know what i'm saying it's like the dialogue isn't that great to be honest. That was one thing that struck me right from the beginning. Even when Lucinda is about to arrive and the mom is like, oh, she gives the worst gifts. Stuff like that was very, like, I think the screenplay could do better. (laughs) I always took the dialogue as, like, another, you know, like, modern facet of the movie. But yeah, in this instance, I do think it's a little weird. It's nonsensical sometimes. This is also when the uncle reveals that he was the one to kill King Florian. Surprise, surprise. But so Ella's solution to this problem is that first she's gonna very quickly find Lucinda, but the retirement place where she was supposed to be had apparently kicked Lucinda out. And so instead she writes a letter to Char, kind of breaking things off. And then she gets Lennon to chain her up to a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just say, she should have picked a better tree. (laughs) That tree is dead. (laughs) One strong gust of wind. Yes! (laughs) Over. And clearly it's not strong enough because at some point she kind of like lifts it up out of the ground from her (laughs) writhing around. And like, just pick any other tree, Ella. But she does tell Slannon to get, you know, the ogres and all the other creatures and get them to the castle to save Char, basically, because he knows that the uncle is trying to kill Char. So while Slannon teams up with the elves and the giants against Edgar, Ella is still chained to the tree when suddenly Lucinda pops 
up out of nowhere. I'm so confused about why Lucinda's there suddenly. Because this whole plotline so far has been Ella searching for Lucinda all over the place. And I feel like having her arrive here out of nowhere kind of undermines all that effort that she put in to find her. And it's never explained either in the movie why she's suddenly there. Yeah, they just say that she's lost on her way to a salad bar, which is funny. Oh, convenient. <laughs> but I think it would have been better if she's actually going to the ball. Yeah, maybe if we had gotten a hint that everyone who's anyone <laughs> is coming to the ball and so Ella's like oh maybe Lucinda will be here too and I'll get to see her then at least we get a hint that Lucinda might be in the vicinity she literally pops up with no warning and she's just conveniently exactly where she needs to be but anyway Ella implores her to take the gift back but Lucinda refuses and she tells her that Ella should do it herself and not blame her for her problems. And I don't understand her character. I don't understand why she makes the decisions she makes. I don't understand why she's so stubborn about taking back a gift that is objectively awful and is ruining <laughs> someone's life. She doesn't seem like a malevolent person. So why... Is she actively ignoring someone's plea for help? Or she's like, don't blame me. It's obviously your fault. It's like, no, it's objectively <laughs> your fault. <laughs> Take accountability for what you did and fix it. Yeah. Lucinda feels like such an underdeveloped character to me. I agree. I guess the way I took it is just she doesn't think of it as a bad gift. Someone's telling you. <laughs> I took it at face value that she doesn't think so and she thinks she's hot shit and I was trying to figure out her character when we were watching this movie because like there's a part where she has like a DUI and obviously she's been kicked out of her, like the place that she was living in and then she just bounces from like party to party and then she tries to go to a salad bar and can't even go there presumably because she's maybe under the influence I don't know but like there are all of these things but I don't quite know what it does for the narrative I do think she's underdeveloped I agree there's one thing that struck me in the scene which is that Ella had to remind her who she is this imbalance of like Lucinda being such a big presence in Ella's life literally ruled her life and to Lucinda she's nothing like she can't even remember who Ella is until she's reminded of it and that just really struck me in the moment tragic also, the fact that when Ella is pleading with Lucinda, she says, I will do anything you ask, which kind of struck me because it's like you're trying to <laughs> break free of that. But to me, it showed that she still isn't aware of the fact that this particular weakness is not just the curse, it's an inherent part of her. And when she's breaking the curse, she's also confronting her own weakness. Interesting. I thought it was more because we know and she knows the cost of that. Yeah, how much it means. Yeah, yeah it goes to show like this is the one thing that she's always hated, but she would do anything if Lucinda will take away the curse. That's also a good point. I also do like the twist on the fairy godmother yeah, thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> Lucinda is her fairy godmother and she's the one who, you know, gives her the dress and sends her to the ball. But here, it's a bad thing. 
That was really fun. A really fun twist on the transformation scene because the whole time Ella's fighting against it and she really doesn't want to. But at this point, they're having a ball at the palace and Ella shows up actively trying to resist the curse and she falls right into Shar's arms and he takes her to go to the Hall of Mirrors with him. I just want to say this is a small thing but we see these settings around the castle and I really like the recurring snake imagery. There's a clock with the hands that look like snakes and you also see these embellishments that look like snakes all over the place and I just really like the look of it and it shows just how far Edgar's treachery has spread throughout the castle. Yeah, it's like the palace and the royals and whatever, the throne, I guess, has been infested with mm. snakes. What I find really funny is that when he brings Ella to the Hall of Mirrors, who were joking around about like <laughs> how it feels like he's bringing her somewhere where he's about to like kill her because it's so like creepy. But what's actually funny is that Ella is there to kill him. <laughs> it's like a reverse. It's a role reversal. Yeah, breaking boundaries. Mm-hmm. But I actually really like this scene. I buy like her despair and her frustration and her struggle because the way it's shot also is very well done. Like there are all of these mirrors and she just starts crying. The way it's portrayed is really well done. And the reveal of the dagger is also really fun. I don't know. I just love the blocking and the staging and the everything. I'm less fond of like the clouds of memories. <laughs> hovering around but aside from that the rest of the scene is so magnificent that it negates the floating memories but yeah, i kind of adore this i love the hall of mirrors i love that like it is a creepy place to bring your partner to but <laughs> it makes sense why he would take her to a creepy place because it's where his father proposed i agree it is a creepy place for a proposal but it is a great place for for murder murder <laughs> yeah <laughs> specifically for a scene like this to take place because it's so dramatic and so visually beautiful and engaging and thematically it also works because it's like a full circle moment because the first time we saw Ella all grown up was through a mirror that's how we got introduced mm, yeah. to her and this is like coming back to that except this time she's really confronting herself and really helping herself for the first time because she is the only person who can help herself. So I think just overall, this is a great setting for the scene. It's also a little bit funny because Edgar is watching from literally a couple of meters away and there's a giant hole in the wall. <laughs> He's watching through like a one-way mirror. I thought it's just like a window. Oh, is it just a window? I think so. That's why I was like, why can't they see him? He's standing right there. I thought it was really funny because it's a one-way mirror. Like, I don't know which is funnier. If it's a window or if it's a one-way mirror. I don't either. I was like, oh, there's a police interrogation room <laughs> like on the other side of this hall of mirrors. Actually, it would be really funny because it's a hall of mirrors. So it's not just like filled with mirrors. It's filled with many different types ah. of mirrors. <laughs> But anyway... Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna hit on Char again. No! There's this one line that's really funny to me. He's been broken up with, right? And he's trying to convince Ella that like they can be together. And he says like, what is it? Is it my politics, your family? Those things don't matter. And it's like, he's saying my politics? 
do you mean your uncle's father? Like, <laughs> the way this dialogue, <laughs> I'm like, sure, those things do matter. Yeah, I think it also struck me, especially because they've known each other for such a short amount of time. Maybe you can say that, maybe if it's been... 10 years or something and you're in a very serious relationship in which you can maybe overcome some of these things but you met each other five minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> it's also like such a weird statement especially in this movie yeah where they're highlighting how important <laughs> politics is <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't believe that Allah believes this but again it's like Shar doesn't know what's happening <laughs> Shar went on this quest, this supposedly eye-opening journey, and, and then says this. <laughs> He's like, love can conquer all. You should totally marry me, even though I enslaved the giants. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think he should have been like, it doesn't matter. Like, what, what's holding you back? Is it your family? Is it my family? That makes sense, right? Those yeah. are things they are associated with that they have no control over. But he says my politics for one, which means like he is assigning like ownership to the, the shitty things that Edgar believes in and has done. And he says your family. And I'm like, Ella has never brought up like I'm ashamed of my family or whatever. <laughs> if I was Ella, I'm like, my what now? Well. <laughs> He's met Hattie. Yeah, but between Ella and Char, they never really talk about it. Like, Ella isn't like, one of my things is that I hate my family. Or like, I hate my sister. That wasn't really part of the story in this iteration of, of Cinderella. So it's a little weird. You're insulting my family and my taste in men? <laughs> I just, I don't like Char. I can't tell if it's him or the writing. Or, I mean, it's obviously the writing. But I do understand why this line is here. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, just as Ella is about to break the curse, the prince looks up and sees Ella holding the dagger over him in the mirror. And I love this moment so much. The fact that we also see it in the mirror, the look on his face. I know I've been hating on Char, but you dance as a decent actor. And like, even like the cluelessness in him. Like, I know I keep calling him dumb, but that really works in this moment because he's so shocked by it. And it works for this scene. When, like, the guards start streaming in and he is so duped by all of this, I don't think someone smarter would fall for it. In this moment, everything that has been ingrained in him by his uncle works. You know, he's like, oh, it's true. All of these people are bad and they are trying to harm us. It confirms all of these really awful beliefs. And I think it really works here. With this dumb fucking face. <laughs> I also really like that it was supposed to be the end of Ella's troubles because she finally manages to break the curse by telling herself in the mirror that she won't be obedient anymore. I just really like how the moment gets twisted and spirals from there, I guess. It's just good storytelling. I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. The uncle tells Char that there's been a building uprising and that Ella was part of the scheme and was just toying with his emotions. And I'm like, if there is a building uprising, why do you think there is one? Any kingdom or government or whatever, if there's a building uprising, for one, there's like a reason for it. But also like the people have a right to have that. If it's like a good ruler or whatever, your first instinct isn't to kill the uprising, it's to figure out why the fuck it's happening. It's weird to me that Char is just like an uprising as if like it's out of the question that they should be ruling. 
that's part of the conceit, right? If an uprising is inherently bad, then your rule is inherently right. Sure, she's so dumb. Anyway, that's okay. That's us. That's <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I think that's evidence enough that he really hasn't gone through the arc the movie thinks he's gone through. He's yeah. still as clueless as ever. Because he's not asking... Not any... Qu I was going to say he's not asking the right questions, but he's not asking, he's asking any questions. Any questions. <laughs> yeah. But Slannon and co. had found Benny, the book, in the bin outside. So they ask to see Ella and they find out that she's in dungeons. So they go and free her. I will say, it's so easy to free her from the dungeon. <laughs> yeah, they just walk in. Yes, and he just claims to be her lawyer and then gets let in. So after they rescue Ella, they ask to see Edgar in the book. And we get one of the greatest comedic scenes of all time. We see Edgar literally hunched over like a scheming little villain poisoning the crown. Which is like cartoon level villainy i don't understand <laughs> what kind of switch has flipped do you <laughs> i don't think he was ever like a really serious villain but he wasn't right right that over the top yeah i will say he was quite cartoonish the entire time but in this moment he's literally tiptoeing <laughs> his way through the plan and he's switching out the crown for another poison one that has like green fumes coming off of it it's just it's so good i love it so much <laughs> But yeah, because Ella has seen this in the book, they quickly crush the coronation so that they can stop Edgar from poisoning Char. They all start fighting each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fight breaks out. And Char and Ella argue as they fight off the guards, which is a classic move. But Mandy is there and she actually turns Benny back into a human. Really easily, which confirms my theory, <laughs> I think. And Ella tells Char you know, everything. Now that she's not bound by the curse anymore to keep things secret. And Char confronts Edgar. And in a rant, the uncle puts the crown on himself and is poisoned. <laughs> yep. I'm not sure what to think of this scene. I like it. It's fun. It's playful. And when the uncle is going on his rant and is about to put the crown, even Ella and Char is like, oh, wait, you forgot <laughs> about the poison. Like, they're not counting on it. They're like, um, don't do that. <laughs> I do like the scene. I mean, I don't like that Char only sees everything once, like, he's about to be poisoned, obviously, yeah. but I don't like Char. I think his entire character is a failure. And not a fun failure. Like, all of these other things, they're in the service of, like, a joke or something, you know? Like, they're kind of supposed to be like that. Whereas Char, I think, is just straight up a failure. Like, I don't think they meant to, you know, do this. Also, Ella finally gets her necklace back from Hattie, which is, now that you had pointed out the symbolism, is a great moment because she's taking herself back, her agency back. Yeah. I do like that Edgar's greed is ultimately what leads to his own downfall without the need for a hero to swoop in and defeat him. What I don't like is that, firstly, as you've already said, it's not great that Char only realizes Edgar's true nature once it's personally about him. But also, when he does figure it out, I wish his betrayal had been bigger. There could be all kinds of complexities in that because it's like not just betrayal, but also 
I don't know, all kinds of heartbreak at realizing that this person you idolized isn't who you thought they were. It could be all kinds of complicated, interesting reactions here, but emotionally, the scene feels quite flat. Edgar and Char don't even have a moment to confront each other before he's already putting on the crown and he's out of the picture. So it all feels very quick and neatly over with. I totally agree with everything you said. Well, I don't think Char has the brain or emotional capacity for any of that. <laughs> I do think this should have been in a different movie or whatever, in a, with a better show. I don't know. With Colin Firth. There we go. With Colin Firth, this would have been a moment of such complex emotions. That's not there at all here. Which is like a choice that they made. Not in regards to Char, but just in regard to the end of Edgar because they wanted to make this like cartoonish put the crown on his head kind of thing which is fine but with Colin Firth as Char we would have had this really complex moment and that would have been amazing but yeah at the end Ella accepts Char's proposal and they get married and then they sing oh yeah they have to sing Char's also a really bad singer he wouldn't have been able to <laughs> Colin Firth really Colin Firth and Mamma Mia wasn't an atrocity you're saying excuse me no <laughs> Sorry, what did you just say? No, one of them was a really bad singer in Mamma Mia, no? Am I making this up? I, I won't, I won't hear this. Someone's in denial. I think I must go. <laughs> I love how you said Char is an awful singer, not Hugh Dancy, Char is. <laughs> I think it is inherent to Char. I think Hugh Dancy. Yeah, it was a choice on Hugh Dancy's part. Hugh Dancy is actually in Broadway, so... Hugh Dancy is actually the fourth dad in Mamma Mia. <laughs> anyway, they sing, and that's the end. Happily ever after, and then the narrator comes back to bookend the movie. So... An absurd conclusion. Mandy has been imprisoning her boyfriend <laughs> on purpose in a book. She's the most powerful fairy of all. <laughs> yeah, she's secretly the she's puppet the master. Puppet master. <laughs> yeah. I will say once Benny is a man again, I'm a little like, well, now you can't tell me like all of the world's secrets. You're kind of useless now. He had restaurant guides. <laughs> he did. In another absurd conclusion, Anne Hathaway only does movies where she can debate in them <laughs> poorly, might I add. I bet this is why Princess Diaries 3 didn't happen. So, now that we have discussed this movie in excruciating detail, what are your thoughts? Have your opinions changed? Would you recommend this movie? I wasn't quite sure what to think of this movie. When I first started watching it, it felt a little bit cheesy at first, but once you get a hang of the tone, the little details and the overall vibe of it end up being really charming. So yeah, I think my initial impression of it and my initial opinion has changed because the more we've talked about it, the more it's become plenty obvious that there is a lot of substance to this movie. And while there are many things they could have done better or that would have been maybe more interesting, I still think this movie is definitely worth a watch because there's still plenty for people to think about and to enjoy. And so despite its shortcomings, I do think it's one of the better adaptations of Cinderella out there. And I would definitely recommend at least one watch because I think it could be a fun time. What about you? I recommend a million watches. <laughs> My opinions have not changed. This is an excellent movie. <laughs> 
I think it's just such a well-rounded movie. Every element here seems like a lot of care is put into it. It's executed really well. And everything put together just makes for a really good movie. We were also talking a lot about how like there isn't a lot to like the Cinderella fairy tale. Like you can't really flesh it out for that long of a movie. And I think this movie is a prime example of turning that fairy tale which is like inherently thin like you know these are like kind of these short stories that are passed down orally and they're supposed to be like memorized and short bursts you know like they're inherently short and to be able to build a whole world out of that and all of these different threads and everything like I don't think this movie is a feat because (laughs) they turned something so classic and brief and succinct into a full-blown movie that is fleshed out quite well. I just think that it's a prime example of why the argument that because while the source material is just that, it's bullshit. Like if you want to make a movie, then make a fucking movie. Like it's an example of not just doing the bare minimum. To me, this movie is excellent because this is what it means to make a movie and actually try. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it so much. (laughs) Highly recommend. I think it is a near perfect movie. Honestly, you probably don't agree with me, but I genuinely feel that way. Like, I can't quite think of anything that's really bad with this movie except for Char. Interesting. Everything else to me feels perfect. Like everything else to me feels like just as they intended. Edgar as a character and like even like his cardboard cutoutness, <laughs> his lack of death feels very intentional to me. And like it feels very reminiscent of the pop culture that they're referencing. And same goes for everything else. While I wouldn't be inclined to agree that it's a near perfect movie because I do think there are more things that could be improved upon. (laughs) I do think that it is a near perfect adaptation. Yeah. It's really a testament to how far you can go if you're creative with the source material and you're not afraid to stray from the original material because with a movie like Cinderella 2015 it felt like they were clinging to the 1950 animation to maybe like try and recapture the same sentiments but in doing so they didn't do anything new or original it was just like a surface level copy paste not understanding what made the original movie so charming and interesting whereas here they take the bare bones and then they make it their own they make it interesting and fun and i think it's a great example of what an adaptation should be yeah It's an excellent adaptation and I think as much as it is like so out there, it is like every single aspect I feel like you can totally trace back to the original Cinderella and the original like fairy tale. All of these things are adaptations of like the core kind of building blocks of Cinderella. So instead of like going to Cinderella and seeing like the story beats and the surface level, like what happens in this moment and then doing it in a new alternative way, they're looking at the original material and they're like, what does this mean though? Yeah. What is it trying to say? Yeah. Why did this happen? Like within its context, what is that? And then translating it to this new world where that would have the same effect. Ella Enchanted truly is an examination of what 
Cinderella the fairy tale is. What does it mean to be trapped in your circumstances? And I think it just does such a good job of adapting Cinderella and both stripping Cinderella into its core values and extrapolating on that. It truly is, to me, the most faithful adaptation of Cinderella in its the story it's trying to tell. Because like another Cinderella story, for example, is the previous movie that we did. And that movie isn't necessarily saying the same thing as Cinderella. <laughs> it's just like taking the same story beats, like not to the same severity as Cinderella 2015, where they took every single story beat and made it about something else entirely. I think what's funny is that we went through these three movies thinking we were going from the closest <laughs> Cinderella adaptation to the most different one. But I think we went the opposite way. I think we strayed closer and closer to Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, this movie really captures the essence of not just Cinderella, but of fairy tales in general. And it's really a fun and creative deep dive into the format of the fairy tale. Yeah. You're right. We <laughs> unintentionally did the opposite of what we wanted <laughs> to do. And I mean, I guess it ended up being a good thing because at least we can end our Cinderella special on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike our Barbie special. <laughs> Well, that's it. That's all for our Ella Enchanted episode. And this is our last episode in our Cinderella special and also our last episode of the year. So like last year, we're doing a wrap up of the movies we covered in 2023. Yeah. The first category is most surprising movie. Do you want to start us off? Sure. I actually have two picks for this category, depending on whether we're talking good surprising or bad surprising. <laughs> I suppose we should start off on a positive note. So for a good surprising movie, I will pick Cinderella 1950. We all knew it's a classic, so it really shouldn't be surprising, but I hadn't watched this movie in a really long time. So I went into it not really knowing what to expect, but it turned out to be just so heartwarming and thoughtful and just such a beautiful story visually and storytelling wise and I know people like to criticize the older Disney movies for various reasons but I think it gives us such a fleshed out and complex and just a really beautiful story and after watching it I can understand why it's hailed as a classic so I really loved it. I totally agree. What is your pick? Well, I didn't realize this would be our first category, so I guess I'm <laughs> coming out swinging. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. My most surprising movie is the Lizzie McGuire movie. I didn't really categorize it as like a good or bad surprise. It's just that I had heard so much about this movie. It's so embedded in, I guess, our generation's pop culture and references. And even though it's not like a bad surprising movie, I am surprised that it's not better than it was. <laughs> The entire experience felt like a fever dream, and it was surprising, because I was excited to finally watch it. It just wasn't for me, and that's fine. That is fine. The movie I was negatively surprised by is Barbie and the Twelve Dancing Princesses. I think a part of it has to do with my perception of that movie from when I was really young because it seemed really intricate like there's 12 sisters and there's a secret code on their floor and they're all dancing and it's magical and all that stuff and it seemed like a really interesting story but when I actually watched it there's not much to it there's not much story or the characters aren't interesting it's kind of 
flat. And so I ended up being kind of disappointed because, of course, we're always going to hold up all the Barbie movies to the standard of Princess and the Popper, <laughs> which maybe is unfair, but especially compared to that movie, it felt like you got like three times more characters in this one. Why is it less than half of the story? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. The next category is criminally underrated. And my pick for this is High School Musical 2. <laughs> is it underrated? <laughs> yeah! Maybe for like High School Musical fans, we understand that it's a masterpiece. But like in the mainstream, it's definitely, I hate to say this because it's reductive and like not really my point, but the only way I can put it is like it's tainted by the High School Musical brand or whatever. Like people aren't taking it seriously because it's High School Musical. But like when you actually watch the movie, as we've already discussed in our episode, it's got like amazing themes. They execute it really well. The characters are pretty like well-developed and the relationships between them are complex and flawed and the characters themselves are flawed. Sharpay's villainy is much more villainous than it may appear on the surface. Yeah, abuse of authority. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just so good. Imagine this movie without the backdrop of something that's quote-unquote tweeny boppy, it would be taken much more seriously. And I like that it's got that, you know, tweeny boppy background. I think it adds to the storytelling. It adds more layers to it. And I like that, but because we live in, like, a sexist world, that does change the way people perceive it. But my point isn't that I wish it hadn't been very sparkly and girly in a musical. My point is that people are dumb for thinking that detracts from the actual contents of the movie or for like not even bothering to look at the movie because of those elements. Anyway, it's a legitimately good movie and this is why it is criminally underrated. It's not just like, I love this movie and I think other people should too. It's like, it has been done wrong. I see your point. That makes sense. I was looking at it in the context of the High School Musical movies. And I mean, as far as I understand, it's the most popular one. So I was surprised when you first mentioned it. But you're right. It definitely doesn't get the recognition as it deserves. Yeah. I mean, unless it wins an Oscar, it has not (laughs) received its praise as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I wouldn't hold out hope, but maybe one day. Anyway, what is your pick for this category? I struggled with this one a little bit. As I mentioned to you, I feel like a lot of the movies we covered this year were kind of not amazing, but not horrible either. They were just fine. So I couldn't honestly come up with one that's really criminally underrated that I wish people would appreciate more. So I guess mine is just underrated. (laughs) Understandably underrated. You know what? It's not that good. (laughs) Maybe it's just rated. (laughs) It's appropriately rated. <laughs> My pick is the Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, <laughs> it's not deep thematically. It doesn't have complex relationships, but it's a fun time. It's just story-wise, it's kind of unhinged. And I love that. It brings me so much joy. I don't know how to really explain it. And maybe it does have something to do with me growing up with the show. But even when I'm just considering the movie just by itself and not as an extension of the show when I'm looking at the story beats I think it's just so fun like compared to some of the other movies we've done which have been excruciating even if it's not you know story-wise it's not like (laughs) amazing it's still just a fun time (laughs) so if you like fun (laughs) you should like the Lizzie McGuire movie (laughs) 
let's move on very quickly. Um, <laughs> our next one is Guilty Pleasure. My pick is Lemonade Mouth. The guiltiest of pleasures. You should feel guilty. I agree. I really should. Because I think the core of why this movie is the guilty pleasure pick for me is like, it's the thing that I realized at the end of the episode where it makes you feel like you've done something or like these people have done something and it's like anarchist and a revolution. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Like they've just conformed to the ruling class and that is seen as a victory for... The marginalized. Yeah, for the marginalized. It just captures everything wrong with like the way some people or some groups of people or some companies or entities or whatever present this kind of movement. So it feels especially insidious. And it's a guilty pleasure because, and yet, I succumbed (laughs) to it. (laughs) I enjoy that feeling of accomplishment. And it has to do with more than just the political stance that it takes. It's the fact that these characters don't really have like that fleshed out of an arc but it feels like it that's why it's a guilty pleasure because i feel so good but i'm so guilty about it because i i've let myself be fooled (laughs) on many counts wow (laughs) you've taken it a lot more literally than i have but (laughs) i see it i i'm kind of (laughs) i see the guilty part not so much the pleasure part (laughs) it's your guilty pleasure (laughs) My pick for a guilty pleasure is Barbie as the Island Princess. Oh, that's a good pick. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of similar reasoning to yours, I guess, in that I know it's not the best movie, but I still love it. I especially really love the music, but take that away. And I mean, there's some interesting character relationships and some potentially interesting themes as well. The execution could have been better, but overall, I think it's one of the less excruciatingly painful movies. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This is a pretty big one. Our favorite movie. So my pick for this category is actually not a movie at all, but it's a TV show and it's H2O. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great pick. I grew up with this TV show and I enjoyed it a lot when I was younger and it's kind of been like a comfort watch for me ever since then. Returning to it for this podcast with a more critical eye, I was having a lot of fun. (laughs) It was really interesting to analyze and to break down the different aspects of the show and kind of really dig into it because there's so much to dig into. Like you can clearly tell that this is a piece of media that's been created with a lot of care, especially considering the fact that it is targeted towards a younger audience. I feel like a lot of the time creators are more inclined to take shortcuts because, you know, they assume kids won't know and won't care. But they really do a lot to bring us a really interesting story with character arcs and just it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to say it's one of my favorite pieces of media that we've talked about on the podcast this year. I almost picked H204 most surprising because I was so pleasantly surprised but yeah good pick your turn my favorite movie is The Princess Diaries (laughs) not surprised also a great pick I mean it's also just very good very well made made with care and Gary Marshall's directing is also very comforting to me I don't know it's just so good and it's just so close to my heart and it's my favorite it's my baby 
Now we are in the top two categories: worst movie and best movie. Let's start things off on a bad note. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so we can end on a good one. Yes. <laughs> so let's start with worst movie. But first, we have to ramp up to it with an honorable mention. Would you like to start us off? My pick for honorable mention for the worst movie is Cinderella 2015. It's just not a good movie. It's an insult to the 1950 version. It's an insult to the original fairy tale. It's an insult to people who love Cinderella, to people who love Disney, to people who like movies. It's an insult to anyone, to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well said. My honorable mention for the worst movie is Disenchanted. I could barely get through this movie. I tried watching it again for my notes and could not make it through. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad in every sense of the word. It almost feels like a low-budget movie. It's so sterile. That's a good word for it. I can totally see that. Yeah, in so many ways, like just in the writing and the themes and the the execution and just in like the filming itself. Like I see some of these shots and it's like it feels like it's on a soundstage and I can tell. That kind of thing. You know what it feels like? It feels like Enchanted was a very good, critically acclaimed blockbuster, and then Disenchanted was like the straight to DVD sequel. So that's my honorable mention. I agree with everything you said, and I will build on it because Disenchanted is my pick for worst movie. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I feel kind of accomplished now because I saw this movie three times. <laughs> that is a feat. Yeah, I saw it once. Just to watch it before I knew what I was getting into, and then I watched it with you for the podcast, and then I watched it a third time for my notes. So, <laughs> wow, that is three times too many. Yeah, definitely. I will never get that time back, and I'm just angry at it. I think what especially frustrated me is the way Disney treated this movie. I think one scene that encompasses their kind of smug attitude about it is the song that Idina Menzel sings in the climax of the movie, Love Power. It's like a generic, empowering song with a bunch of references from older Disney movies. And it feels like they have such a flippant attitude towards the movies that have come prior to this one, to, to the real classics. And the way they just mashed it all up and try to reference Cinderella with the dress transformation. It feels like one big cash grab because that's what it is. It's they're trying to cash in on the nostalgia people have for older Disney movies, the love that people have for Enchanted, and it feels like a big slap in the face to anyone who has ever enjoyed any of the previous older Disney movies. It feels like such a cheap move. And I think that's a big part of the reason why I really dislike this movie. I wouldn't even really blame them for the cash grabby part if they had actually managed to make a good movie. But it also fails in that sense. It doesn't have half the heart and the charm of Enchanted. It kind of steps on everything Enchanted set up even. Like we discussed in the episode, we already know what happens after the happily ever after because that's what Enchanted is. <laughs> so it's a completely unnecessary story. It doesn't add anything. If anything, it just it ruins what we had already set up. It's just so bad. And that statement alone doesn't encapsulate just how bad it is, but that's all I can say. It's just so bad. It's so awful that this movie exists. <laughs> You're so right. 
Well, this whole segment is hilarious to me because my actual worst movie is Cinderella 2015. <laughs> <laughs> so we just had the same two movies flipped. I love that. I was also torn between the two. I was like, they're awful. They're both awful. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Please go on. I want to hear your... <laughs> I, I hear mean, your... what else can I say? <laughs> it's just really bad. In addition of all of the offenses that Disenchanted had, it is also actually offensive (laughs) (laughs) to a whole population of people, namely women. That movie is just really bad and really genuinely offensive. And yeah, the end. (laughs) (laughs) Great points. Okay, we gotta pick it up. Yeah. Our final category, best movie, starting with our honorable mentions. Would you like to start? Finally, something I'm actually happy to talk about. My honorable mention for best movie is Shrek. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. I know it has a bit of a reputation and it's a goldmine for memes and it's kind of seen as like a cult classic. It has a very specific kind of following, but I do think setting all of that aside, it's a genuinely good movie. Like, yeah, it's goofy and there are some juvenile jokes and stuff, but I also think it's very clever and witty and it's also got some interesting themes and the characters are fleshed out and well-developed and it also subverts a lot of expectations for its genre, which is really fun and it's just... A fun time, but also, it's also good. It's time well spent watching that movie. So I genuinely think it's up there in the list of movies we've covered this year. Yeah, great point. (laughs) I would also like to say, if I may (laughs) add on to it, all of their like references are adding something to the story. And by making those references, they are commenting on it. And that's what makes references good in like storytelling instead of something like *And Disenchanted that you mentioned earlier, where the function or the purpose is just to elicit a hollow response to trigger like endorphin in the audience because people are like, oh, I know that. And that makes you think you're having a positive experience. Whereas in Shrek, all of their references, the purpose and the function is to comment on the scene that is happening and the piece of media that they are referencing at the same time. Yeah, that's a really great point. My honorable mention for best movie is actually The Princess Diaries. (laughs) It's just a very good movie, like I said. That it is. Alright, here we go! Are you ready? (laughs) What is your best movie of 2023? I think you'll like this one. My nomination for best movie is The Princess Diaries. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) I was also surprised. I like that movie. I just didn't realize it was so good. It's objectively good. Anyway, I look at it. It's really well done. The one thing that especially sticks with me is the levels. (laughs) (laughs) The hills, the rock climb, the tower. The house. Yeah! The levels, yes. And more broadly, the visuals. The way it uses the setting so beautifully and the way it's ingrained into the storytelling as well and what it tells us about the character relationships and the characters themselves. It's a visual treat as well as just a really good story and it's difficult to find a fault with it. It's such a great movie. It's so great. I love it. 
A plus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your turn. Drum roll. <laughs> My best movie is Pretty Woman. So the Princess Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> love this movie so much it's so well done and i think like i was gonna say everything about the princess stories heightened but not necessarily but one thing for example is the performance to me princess stories has like excellent performance like all of these great actors and they're genuinely putting they're all into it and doing a really great job but then you watch pretty woman and the actors are just like masters of their craft like i cannot explain how good it is in all the silences all of the physical acting i just i love it so much it's such a treat to watch an artist do their thing and it feels like i'm being fed the entire time i'm watching the movie i also think rom-coms are some of the hardest if not the hardest thing to pull off to write and act and direct and just make a movie of or just romance in general because you have to make the audience buy into this romance and like it is so impressive to watch this movie and actually see the connection that they have not just in the sense that like oh they have great chemistry the second they meet they're great with each other it's like the relationship that they grow over time and like a lot of it is thanks to the performance but I mean all of the aspects of the movie I think help pull this off and I think Pretty Woman is the most successful portrayal of a relationship of any kind like platonic or otherwise forming and then flourishing and then you know turning romantic and I think it's just also really impressive that they managed to portray these two characters specifically a sex worker and a predatory businessman in a way that really humanizes them not that like these are people who you wouldn't think of humanity in them I'm just saying like these are very specific choices for characters and it's a great choice, an interesting choice, and an impressive choice to use this vehicle to reflect our humanity as like uh, any story would be doing. I mean, I think it says something because my memory is not the best, but I do remember a lot of the quieter moments from the movie, and I think it's a very impressive thing that they managed to convey so much with so little like even in the quieter moments when they're not necessarily talking or even interacting at all with each other like I still remember that shot of Vivian waiting for the bus I think outside the hotel or when she's like at the dining table but instead of sitting on the chair she sits on the table like little things like that really are so effective in telling us a bunch of things like it tells us so much about the character it conveys certain themes it adds more complexity to the story and it is a really a great movie I totally agree with your choice. <laughs> we both like The Princess Diaries. <laughs> I also really liked that it's that trope of like rich older guy and sexy younger woman or whatever. And they play around with that trope and not even subvert it, but like take it to a more human level, like take it farther. Yeah. They aren't taking it and then saying like, we are better than that and like making a lot of jokes about like we're not like other rich guy and sexy younger woman couples it's like they are they are that couple and we're gonna use that to tell this really good story i just love it yeah you're right it serves a really important purpose in the movie because money is such a big theme in the movie in the story and like just transactions because of vivian's job yeah yeah you're right 
and the way they build on it to develop these characters is so interesting you can tell that it's not an arbitrary choice they made just because that's the convention in rom-coms so we have to do it there's a purpose it's intentional and it's executed really well yeah we basically had the same best movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah the same worst movies too Yeah. (laughs) Well, as a surprise, we actually have a bonus round. And this is a category that's pretty special to our hearts. And we couldn't do this wrap up without including it. And that category is best music video. (laughs) It was a difficult choice. It was challenging. Even more difficult than picking between Cinderella 2015 and Disenchanted for the worst movie. So, I mean, (laughs) I think that says something. That it does. Well, I have one picture before me and one category standing in front of me. (laughs) And of course, the winner is... All Too Well, the short film. (laughs) Yeah, truly remarkable. Best short film based on a song by Taylor Swift that I've ever seen. (laughs) Same, same, same. (laughs) Well, on that note, that's it for this episode. And for this season. And for this year. Yeah. We will be back next year after a break in January. So we'll have our next episode in February 2024. If you have any suggestions for movies we should discuss on the podcast, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Instagram, the graveyard slot podcast on Tumblr, or email us at the graveyard slot at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot.